Hello, and thank you for listening. This is Rich Goodman, Head of Capital Development for Toronto Stock Exchange and TSX Venture Exchange. Welcome to TMX Presents, the podcast. This is where we have conversations with capital markets leaders from around the world. We look to gain insights from the influential decision makers and visionary entrepreneurs helping to shape the future business landscape. As head of capital development for Canada's largest equity exchanges, my role is to unlock global pools of capital for our listed issuers on the TSX and TSX Venture Exchange. In today's episode, we are going to talk about impact investing, pension fund investments in public markets, and his role on the TMX board with Eric Wetlaufer. Eric is a seasoned institutional investor and is managing partner at Twin River Capital, a global impact investment firm. He also serves on the board of directors of TMX Group, IMCO, Intera Solutions, and Niagen Fintech. He is the former senior managing director, global head of public market investments at CPPIB. Prior to that, he was the group chief investment officer international at Fidelity in Boston, Massachusetts. He has also held the roles of Chief Investment Officer at Putnam Investments, Managing Director at Cadence Capital Management, and is a past director of the UN-supported PRI and past president of the CFA Society in Boston. Welcome, Eric, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Rich. It's great to be here. How have you been? I've been doing great. I miss our moments visiting pension funds. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll do that again soon. First thing I'd love to talk about today is impact investing, a topic I know is extremely important to you. The long-held view of traditional investors is that corporations should focus on shareholder returns and let charitable organizations deal with social and environmental issues. Tell us why you challenge this traditional view. I'm a product of my experience and sort of the ups and downs of the investment business and what we do well and what we haven't done well. Impact investing for me is about the collective measures that investors can take to improve how business is done and to improve the beta, the quality and the sustainability of the market returns over time, and to reward those companies that are doing a particularly good job through their products and services. So separate and distinct from ESG investing, Impact investing is about the outputs of companies, their impact from the outputs of the companies. It's measured data that we're looking for. It's not simple yes and no criteria that's aggregated into some ESG black box score. What are our clients looking for? They're looking to invest according to their values, more and more clients. They're seeing ESG funds and putting their money there. But there's a lot of ESG funds that are not doing a particularly good job. So if you look in the largest asset manager's largest ESG fund, you'll find Coke and Pepsi in there. And so if you want the world to have more plastic and sugar, good for you. But I don't think that's what most people think they're getting with an ESG fund. Impact is better for those who want to invest with social and environmental purpose, but they also want to measure it and track it through the products and services and the outputs and the outcomes that those create in the world. One of the things we're seeing with ESG for investors is the lack of standards. When you add impact investing to that, how do you differentiate the good or bad? And and how do you, as an investor, set the criteria? 
Yeah, I think that's been a big part of the challenge, which is that the service providers, the vendors of the world that produce ESG ratings don't have a set of standards. And as SASB and other organizations have come forward to set standards, I think we're getting closer to an agreed upon set of standards. But I sat on a call for this comment period. So there's a set of standards that are out for comment now with the IFRS, with the SEC in the US and with CSA in Canada about particularly the climate standards, which were the result of, I think, a lot of good work that we actually participated in at CPPIB in climate. Stephanie Least, who ran our group back then, participated in the task force for climate-related financial disclosure, the TCFD. And they came up with a comprehensive set of recommendations that today are serving as the foundation for these proposals that are out for comment right now. So I think we're getting to a place where there's more consensus and more convening of standard setters, but we're not quite there yet. For impact investors, you go right to the data itself. And you, for example, in a healthcare company, if you're looking at diabetes, you want to try to figure out through let's say, glucose monitoring devices, how many lives are prolonged per glucose device, how many days in the hospital are avoided, how many days away from work are saved, how much time is a person spending within a healthy range of glucose in their blood? Is it less than 50% or is it 60 or 70%? So the actual data itself of the impact, you get away from this black box of scoring systems where, you know, if somebody has a policy or a committee on something, then, you know, they get a checkbox plus or a checkbox minus if they don't. And somehow that's rolled up into a score. So I think the industry is moving forward, but as impact investors, we go right straight to the data and try to calculate and measure exactly what difference the company's making with what they do. You've talked about how things have evolved, starting with ESG, now impact investing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your personal story of when this started meaning something to you and how your position has evolved over the years. My family was not involved in the capital markets or in finance. My father was a scientist, grew up in Minnesota, spent a lot of time out in nature. I was a geology major. I spent a lot of time up in ice fields up in Alaska and British Columbia. And we were studying, we were using glacial activity as a way to understand the historical variation in climate. And when I got a job in investing, I found that I really enjoyed this game of trying to figure out, you know, which stocks were going to go up more than the other ones and trying to understand what drove those stock prices. And I kind of got hooked and it became my career. So that was kind of an accidental approach. But I was attracted to this idea that there were not just financial factors that were moving people's hearts and minds when they came to work every day, and that there was something about the mission of companies that was important to people, and, and the non-financial difference that companies were making were becoming more and more important to people, particularly young people, and that if we focused solely on financial returns, that we were going to end up being more short-term oriented, less sustainable, and perhaps create more harm than good. And so, you know, in the early days, I was really interested in a couple of firms, 
Calvert, Kinder Leidenberg, Dominie in Boston, what they were doing back in the 80s and 90s, social screening, early corporate engagement. You know, they were thinking about environmental considerations. I think I was really curious and intrigued about what they were doing. But back then I was a lot younger, more aggressive, and they seemed like very quiet places to me. I was attracted by the idea, but not necessarily by the atmosphere, if you will. So, you know, fast forward to my role recently at CPP Investment Board as head of public markets there. You know, I became really acutely aware of the gap between ESG as a concept, as an idea, and the actual practices of firms claiming to be ESG investors. In 2011, when I joined CPP, our sustainable investments team did largely the G work, the governance work, proxy voting and corporate engagement, and some deeper research on some resource companies. But as the decade rolled forward, you know, we became a lot more active. In climate in particular, I mentioned the work that Stephanie Lease did on the TCFD. And I sat on the board of the Principles for Responsible Investing, which is this global signatory group that signs up for six principles, basically promoting, incorporating, disclosing ESG considerations. And what I found was, I think, part of a broader theme of our investment industry overall, which is that we don't do a great job listening or understanding our clients. But rather, we develop product we think we want to develop that works for us as manufacturers of the product. But it might not either be understandable to our clients or really what they want. Other industries, I think, do a much better job understanding their clients' needs, their clients' wants. The investment industry asks, what are you investing for? Are you investing for college or home, retirement? And then they say, okay, thanks, we got it from here. And you get dropped into some asset allocation template for reasons that are not necessarily properly explained to you. So what I found was many investment firms simply relabeling what they've always done as ESG, or that they've included some kind of black box external ESG scoring system into their risk modeling, and then they change their weighting, or they tilting their portfolio to a bit higher ESG scores. But the question is, well, how much of an ESG tilt and how strong an ESG bias? And it's probably, frankly, unknown to most people inside the investment firm, let alone the client, given how opaque the scoring is. And it's, I think, currently being well documented in the financial press how many companies score well on some ESG scoring schemes and, and poorly on others. It's tough to unearth the source of all those differences. There is good ESG investing done out there, but I asked myself and others, what does ESG done well actually look like? And those questions led me to impact investing, which is focused, as I mentioned, not just on these internal footprints of a company that are difficult to measure, but on the outputs, the outcomes, and the ultimate impacts of the company's products and services. So it was a bit through a frustration with seeing it done poorly and then thinking about what was done right and talking to a lot of people, really smart people, about what could work that I came to impact investing. Now that you've figured out what works, you are the managing partner of Twin River Capital, an impact investing firm. What can you tell me about Twin River? It's a new firm. We're a year old. We have a dual mission. We want to advance a positive environmental and social impact globally, and we want to deliver financial returns. So those are the twin streams of impact and financial that inspired our name, Twin River Capital. And we want to do it at scale. Impact investing has been a bit of a cottage industry. 
And so we want to see if we can do this in an institutional way that can scale and mobilize more capital and hopefully be one of the leaders in the industry setting an example that young people coming into this industry can make a career out of it. We're focused on three themes currently. Those themes are energy and the environment, health and well-being, and inclusive economic growth. And the criteria that we focus on are intentionality, how core to a company's business, their products, their services, their communication, how intentional is this impact that they're making. Additionality is the second criteria, which is to say, as a company scales, can it be a meaningful solution? Can it make a meaningful contribution, a material contribution to solving some of the bigger problems that are out there in the environment and society? And then finally, measurability. We really need to figure out ways to measure the impact so that we can take the same discipline that we apply to the financial side, setting, you know, measuring progress, setting goals, tracking companies against our targets for their impact, just like we would on the financial side. How would you correlate these measurable impacts with financial returns? There should be a great correlation. I think that natural advantages accrue to companies that are scoring well and doing well on impact. I think more talented young people want to work at places that they believe are making a difference in the world. So they think there's a talent advantage. I think there's a customer advantage. Customers given a choice will buy products and services for companies that they believe are making a bigger difference in the world. Often it's been proven that they will pay a premium and which can create greater margins for companies in that space. I think there's a regulatory advantage. They'll get into less problems with regulators. I think there's a cost of capital advantage that will accrue over time. So across a multitude of factors, I think the wind is at the back of impact companies and they should, as a group, over the long term, deliver solid and very competitive financial returns. Is your diligence process more cumbersome than it has been previously? Cumbersome? I wouldn't say cumbersome, but I would say that it's more work, for sure. It is more work. In the past, these factors have been interesting. They've been things that we've discussed with companies that we invest in. They've been things that we've written about and had a dialogue with management teams about, but we haven't really had the measurement discipline, the tracking discipline, the deeper research that we do today. So for example, with an education company, like an education software like Duolingo, right? This is the language learning software. We might say, okay, well, they're making a difference in the world by improving the economic opportunity of people who learn a second language. And we might leave it at that. And isn't that nice that they're growing their business and helping more people? What we do now is say, okay, well, how do we measure that? We'll actually go and look at the academic studies. And so in Canada, for example, it's a two-language country, English and French. For those people that learn that second language, the academic studies would show that your economic opportunity goes up by 6 to 8%. But in Africa, if you learn English, your opportunity to increase your income can go up by 60 to 80%. So tenfold the increase that you would see in Canada. So if we can figure out how many active users and learners of English there are in Africa using some of these academic studies, we can start to track the improvement in economic opportunity and outcomes that are available to customers over time. 
So it's another couple of layers of investigation, research, tracking, documentation, and reporting to our clients that we would do now that we would not have necessarily done previously. In your former role at CPP Investment Board, you were managing a portfolio of $180 billion. You mentioned earlier that ESG was really in the early stages of their radar at the time. How would you say pension funds like CPPIB and others have been evolving their view of impact investing and ESG investing over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite considerably. The Northern European sovereign wealth funds and pension plans, I think, were the leaders in this area. They, I think, earlier on felt that their mission were to be solely financially return-based would potentially lead pensioners to have a nice stream of cash flows, but into a world which they might not want to live in. And so that if you don't have to sacrifice financial returns, if you can also bias your investments towards companies that can create a better future, a physical future, a social future, that was the right thing to do for everybody, for all stakeholders. And so I think other Regions of the world watched that, watched the success that they were having, and decided that maybe they're not quite as explicit as that, but that incorporating ESG research and considerations into their investment processes were something that they could do. CPPIB was one of the original signatories to the six principles in the PRI. And I think over time, with good success on the governance side and company engagement on better governance, both through the PRI and the CCGG, the Coalition for Good Governance here in Canada. I think that they started to practice this collaboration, which they could do in the E and the S space as well as the G space, and that other investment departments could start to work with the sustainable investments teams to better think about the environmental footprint the social footprint of their holdings, and before making an investment, better understanding the risks and making sure that you're compensated for any of these non-financial risks that you might be taking on. And to have maybe some policies around those kinds of companies that you might not invest in. Exclusions, it's a kind of a third rail. People don't like to talk about it, but there are certainly those that are disclosed there are exclusions that are not disclosed, but that are inside firms practiced. So there are kinds of companies that just are not going to make it across the finish line as potential investments. In many cases, through better reporting, better disclosure, better standards, there's just a lot more that can be done by larger, sophisticated pension plans. And they've built teams to take that information in, organize it, assess it, create insights from it that can help in the investment decision-making process, and they're doing that. And you'll see the sustainability reports from the pension plans have gotten better and better over the years. One of the things you and I tried to tackle a couple years ago is the fact that organizations like CPPIB that manage hundreds of billions of dollars don't seem well-equipped to invest in early-stage innovation companies primarily because these investments are too small at that stage. We proposed certain changes that weren't exactly received all that favorably by these pensions that we believed would better equip them to get uh, better exposure to these types of investments. Why do you think they were resistant to our ideas? 
One of the criteria for investment strategies at a larger fund is how scalable is it? How much money can you put to work? The idea that it's not just how much money you can put to work, but what you can take out of an investment is as or perhaps far more important is one that I think more larger investors are coming around to. And what you take out of investment is not necessarily just your unicorn, oh, we made a ton of money in this now billion-dollar startup, but it's also the learnings. So the argument being, if you have a multi-hundred billion-dollar portfolio and you've got a wide range of assets, it's private equity, private debt, infrastructure, real estate, public markets, et cetera, et cetera, that... In a world of greater disruption, in a world of more dynamic, exponential business models, that a better understanding of what's coming down the pipeline that could potentially threaten the assets that you already have on your books is extremely valuable. And so for a small investment in some venture capital funds or some smaller companies directly, you get a really good education of what's coming to potentially disrupt your current portfolio, which the risk of which is much bigger than necessarily the returns or the investment that you would make in your smaller companies. So, you know, I think the successes that some of the pension plans have had in venture capital, what they've learned, what they've delivered with respect to returns has been excellent. And I think more firms are starting to participate. Another trend we've seen with pension funds is lowering of focus with Canadian public equities. When you were at CPPIB, you managed a portfolio of $180 billion, and you saw that share of investments decrease substantially with the Canadian investments as a proportion of that total, and we're seeing a continuation of that decrease. Do you think this is a continuing trend, or is this reversible? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting one. There's a lot of different ways to think about it and to look at it, one of which is country allocation passively is determined by sort of financial theorists thinking that you need this global market-weighted portfolio. The people who execute on that are the index providers, right? It's the S&Ps, the Russells, the FTSEs, the MISCIs. Those index providers will tell you what a sort of riskless, broad exposure to the global markets are. And and where I come from in the U.S., a global investor would buy a combination of U.S. indices and IFA. Well, IFA standing for Europe, Asia, the Far East. And what's left out of that is Canada. You know, so Canada kind of got zero weight for a global investor in the U.S., In Canada, I think the investors where I worked were overweighted Canada on the fixed income side and also overweighted Canada on the equity side. But because of this market weighting template that everybody has, it's a very small weight. This idea of a country bias, whether it's a home country bias to invest more in your home country, or whether it's a country bias away from countries where you think that there are greater risks. They could be financial risks. They could be geopolitical risks. But we just saw this with Russia. We've seen it in Hong Kong and China, where people are having second thoughts about simply accepting the country weights that are provided by index providers as some default risk-free position. So if you blindly follow indexes, you will go to dark places in periods of extreme 
conditions. It could be by country. It also could be by sector or strategy. So I believe that there are great opportunities in Canadian equity investing. I think that the really special growth companies in Canada have better access to Canadian pension plans today than they've had in the past. But I think that's going to continue. I think that trend will continue, that there has to be better access. And I think there will be a greater home country bias. I don't think that's a bad thing. You've been a director at TMX for some time now. How many years has it been? I think it's been since 2012. So I think it's been 10 years. 10 years. Wow. Yeah. What changes have you seen at the exchange over the years that you're most proud of? There's been great changes. I think there's been a ton of positives. I think with respect to strategy, TMX has been a more active acquirer of businesses that can lever the strengths of the TMX. Roger Martin has a new book out, A New Way to Think. In it, he describes how the acquirer needs to bring value to the acquired company, which is a bit reversed from typically how most people think about acquisitions. It's what can the acquisition bring to you, the acquirer? But he describes how important it is for the center to deliver value to the front lines and ultimately to deliver value to the customer. And I see that kind of thinking in the TMX and how it's been evaluating potential acquisitions and how it's made acquisitions. The business itself certainly has changed its geographic diversification with the acquisition of Tradeport in the UK. Its business line diversification has better balance, more recurring revenue. You know, I think it's a more effective executive team. There's better collaboration. When I joined as a director a decade ago, I think it was a bit more top-down and hierarchical and a collection of almost unrelated businesses. It's definitely not that today. How would you like to see TMX grow over the next decade? Oh, faster. (laughs) I'm just speaking from my position as a board member. I'm also a shareholder, of course, but certainly some of these bigger themes like the energy transition and carbon as an asset to be traded and sequestered, artificial intelligence and automated decision science. These are kinds of themes that are going to be big and bigger. And whether we can list more companies that are in those spaces, whether we can develop trading and data services, analytics around these themes to help our clients make money in these areas, those are places that we can expand our resources that we allocate to those places. But it always starts with clients. It's always got to be the clients. What enhancements would they value? And how can we make their day more effective and more profitable? And how can we reach more clients? For example, you know, we did extended trading hours in Asia. And then how can we better help the clients that we already have? I think talent. I'm chair of the HR committee, and so I'm super focused on talent. How do we do better at attracting talent, developing it, retaining it? How do we do it in a culture we can be proud of? Leadership and innovation and risk-taking is not the exclusive domain of senior executives. Inspiration. It's okay for inspiration to travel uphill as well as downhill. It can flow in the pipes any which way. So let's lift up the people and the achievements that inspire us. And that's the mark of a really great culture. And I think focus, right? There's so many opportunities that we have as a business, potential acquisitions and new products. And and so focus is critical. You know, are we asking the right questions? What will move the needle? What will make a difference? What would have to happen for us to double the size of this company? Where would that come from? What could that come from? If we can try with all the things going on in the world and with all the opportunities and risks in front of us, if we can focus, that's critical. 
those are all the things that you'll hear me in the boardroom asking about. What can TMX do to help improve impact investing in the capital markets? TMX is, is in a unique position to help all the companies that list on, on the exchanges and ones that list on other exchanges. There's, as we mentioned, these standards for sustainability information, whether it's environmental or social, that are coming down the pipe. And those requirements for disclosure are going to be a challenge for listing companies to meet. There's some proposals which are out there that companies should disclose at the same time, concurrent with their financial numbers, which I think a lot of us are not in favor of. But it is going to be a challenge. I think TMX is in a great position to point its listing companies and others to products and services that can help streamline this and simplify it and uh, make it easier, reduce the burden. And then, of course, also its trading clients, those that trade on the TMX, will want ways to access this data and organize it, create insights from it in an automated and quick and easy fashion and create signal from the noise so that they can make money from it. And that's what we're all about is helping our clients make money. So I think TMX is uniquely positioned to be able to help in this area. And I expect we're going to do some interesting work. In addition to TMX, you're also a director of several other companies of varying sizes. How does your experience on the board of TMX compare to these other directorships? My boards are like my kids. They're very different, but I love them all. The TMX board is larger, I think, with a greater set of experiences and talents and backgrounds. It's very active and engaged with management, both during the board meetings, but also in between. And I think there's a very strong relationship with the CEO and with management. What I would say, and this is for all my boards, I think there's no replacement for in-person meetings. And now that that's safe, I think we're all really looking forward to that. You do lose something from that informal time in between meetings and at the beginning and the end of the meetings. I think the TMX board also has really strong committees. The committees do a lot of work. I'm on the HR and FA committees and the other committees as well do a lot of the heavy lifting that make the broader board sessions more effective. Switching gears a bit to personal investing, how has your experience you know, with CPPIB, Fidelity, Putnam, and various other places, how has that shaped your investment philosophy? Well, my portfolio is a lot smaller. Uh, <laughs> I think my experience at all of the places that I've worked over the past 30 plus 35 years has reinforced that I, I just love entrepreneurs and business builders and getting to know them, helping them think through their challenges is just incredibly satisfying to me. So with a much smaller personal portfolio, I, you know, I invest in smaller private companies, for sure, where I can get that kind of engagement myself personally. And I can take more risk because personality-wise, I just have a higher risk tolerance. But like these larger firms, you know, I have diversified well across asset classes and geographies. And like Twin River, where a majority of my public market holdings reside is in the fund that I run here, I do try to invest more with a social or environmental purpose. And that brings me personal satisfaction as well as that financial return. Eric, this has been great. I'd like to thank you for talking with me today. And I'm sure our listeners learned a lot about the importance of impact investing. But before we go, what one message about impact investing would you like to leave with our listeners? 
I would say pay attention, stay tuned. You're going to see a lot more impact investing product out there and a lot of people taking the same disciplined approach to measuring the good that these companies are doing that they would take to the financial goals and progress companies are making, which is exciting to me. I don't think you have to give up one for the other. Well, thanks again, Eric. And thank you for listening to TMX Presents, the podcast. Thank you, Rich. For more information on TSX and TSX Venture Exchange investing information, please subscribe to our monthly Investor Insights Report and our Market Intelligence Report by visiting tsx.com MIG. And for more insights from capital markets leaders and my TMX colleagues, please visit tmx.com POV. 